0: Many of you know that I'm a huge fan of Charles Spurgeon. Listen, read a lot of his his sermons. He was a pastor in London back in the late 1800s at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in London. Uh, It was a megachurch of its day. 6,000 people would come each Sunday to hear Charles Spurgeon preach. And there was one particular Sunday where five American college students who had never met Spurgeon came to London, and they were excited to hear him preach. So they get to church early. They get to the Metropolitan Tabernacle early, and as they get to the church, they're met by this kind gentleman who was there early, and he said, hey, I want to give you a tour of the church. They thought, this is awesome. You know, we got here early. We get to have a tour of the church, and so this kind gentleman begins to take them to different places, and then he says, I want to show you guys the boiler room. The, the basement where the furnace is, the boiler room. And they thought, that's kind of weird. We, we, we kind of really want to see the sanctuary. We want to see the pulpit where Spurgeon preaches. We don't really want to go down to the basement and see the boiler. But we don't want to appear rude, so we'll just kind of go down there and see what this is all about. So the kind gentleman takes them down to the basement and he opens the door. And as he opens the door, there are several hundred people on their knees praying Diligently for God's power to move upstairs in the sanctuary in just a few moments when the worship service would start. And the kind gentleman at that point revealed his identity. And it was none other than Spurgeon himself. And he said to these young men, This is the fuel of our church. This is the power of our church. My people pray for me in this church. Nothing of eternal significance happens in this church without these faithful people praying in the furnace, in the boiler room, in the basement. Can you imagine every Sunday 200 people choosing not to hear Spurgeon preach but to be on their knees in the basement praying for the salvation of sinners, praying for God's work to be done in the worship service up above? Prayer was vital to Charles Spurgeon's ministry. And prayer can be hard work. I'm the first to admit, it's, it's hard to pray at times. Prayer is a struggle. Prayer is not glamorous. Prayer is hard work. But, prayer is vital to our spiritual growth as Christians. Even Jesus himself while on earth. It's, it's amazing to me the passage of Scripture we're going to look at today. Even Jesus himself, while on earth, understood the importance of prayer, going to his heavenly Father. So let's kind of retrace our steps in the Gospel of Luke. I know I haven't been with you for the past few weeks. Uh, let's just kind of retrace our steps. So back in chapter 4, uh, Jesus goes to his hometown of Nazareth. He preaches a sermon, and if you remember, they, they hated him so much they wanted to throw him off a cliff. So his hometown doesn't accept him. And then he begins to have these interactions with the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day. And so as he's interacting with these Pharisees, he does all these things, they don't lie, he eats with sinners, uh, he heals on the Sabbath, Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, and so Jesus has really kind of had these showdowns with these, these um, religious leaders. And then it gets to the very end, Of this exchange with these Pharisees and as you remember from a few weeks ago they plotted to kill Jesus so Jesus is not very popular at this time his hometown doesn't like him the Pharisees don't like him he is a target of their hatred and so now Luke is going to shift gears a little bit for us to Jesus choosing his 12 apostles So we're kind of shifting gears in the Gospel of Luke. We're moving into a new section where Jesus calls his apostles, and then he's going to start a new ministry, preaching and teaching to the large crowd. So let's pick up in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. Hopefully everybody's there. Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 12. And these days he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became A traitor. Pretty easy passage of Scripture to understand. Jesus prays all night, chooses his 12 apostles. Okay, we can go home, right? That's kind of what we're going to talk about. No, we're not going to go home. What we see from this passage of Scripture are two very important truths that show us the priority of of Jesus and also how it impacts us. So here's truth number one, and it's very simple. Jesus places a priority on prayer. Jesus places a priority on prayer. Now, the Gospel of Luke shows a little bit more emphasis on the prayer life of Jesus than maybe Matthew, Mark, and John. We see Jesus all through the Gospel of Luke praying. Go back to chapter 4, verse 42 for a moment. Chapter 4, verse 42. When it was day... He departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him, and he would have kept them or kept him from leaving. He would go to a desolate place. He would go out by himself to pray. Then in chapter 5, verse 16, he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. So here in verse 12, Jesus spent all night in prayer. And Luke says he continued in prayer to God. Now, the way that's worded in the original language there, it means it was an intense prayer time. It was an earnest prayer time. It was a focused prayer time. Jesus was diligently all night praying and aligning his will with his Father, which brings up an interesting question. Why does Jesus have to spend all night in prayer? Isn't Jesus God? Doesn't he know what he needs to do? Doesn't he have all the information? Why does Jesus spend all night in prayer asking for wisdom before he chooses his 12 disciples? Now, this is a little bit difficult to understand because Jesus is fully God. He knows all things. If you remember from a few weeks ago, he read the minds of the Pharisees. He's fully God, but he's fully man. I can't quite fully explain it, but we see Jesus praying all throughout the Gospels. He's praying to his father. Now, what Luke doesn't tell us here is we don't know what he's asking the father for. We don't have the recorded prayer of what Jesus was praying. It just says says he spent all night in prayer. But when you go to John's gospel, you kind of see some of the recorded prayers of Jesus and you kind of get an idea of what Jesus is praying for. Do you guys remember Lazarus? Lazarus was the friend of Mary and Martha. Martha. And you remember, Lazarus died, and Jesus waited four days before he went to Mary and Martha, and by that time, Lazarus was in the tomb. Uh, he, his body began to decompose and to, to smell, and so Jesus is going to raise Lazarus from the dead, but before Jesus does that, he prays out loud so the people around him can hear the prayer. And so in John 11, 41 through 43, they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. So Jesus prays out loud because he wants the people around him to hear the prayer. And what does Jesus say? Father, you always hear me. You always hear my prayer request. You always answer me. So Jesus has this dynamic relationship with his father in prayer. But right before Jesus is arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, we have his high priestly prayer. All of John chapter 17 is the prayer of Jesus. So we have it recorded from his own mouth what he was praying at that time. And just listen to what Jesus prayed in John 17, one through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, this is his prayer, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you've given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Here in Jesus's prayer, it's all about God's glory. So we don't really know what Jesus is praying in Luke when he's choosing his disciples, but we do know from John's gospel that Jesus' prayer life is all about the glory of God, the will of God, the work of God. So we can kind of guess here and say that Jesus is up, is up all night praying for God's will, God's glory in the choosing of these 12 apostles. So what does this tell us about the priority of prayer? If, if Jesus prayed all night and we see him praying all throughout the Gospels, what does it tell us about the priority of prayer? So let's talk about three things. Real practical this morning. First, and this is kind of a no-brainer, if Jesus was dependent upon his Father, how much more should we depend upon our Father in prayer? Now let's just, just be honest here. We don't fully understand the prayer life of Jesus being fully God and fully man, but we do know that he spent all night in prayer. And if the Son of God in the flesh had to spend all night in prayer seeking the face of his Father, then how much more does that mean that we need to depend on the Father in prayer? If Jesus depended upon his Father in prayer, how much more do we need to depend upon the Father in prayer? A.C. Dixon has said this, when we depend upon organizations, we get what organizations can do. When we depend upon education, we get what education can do. When we depend upon man, we get what man can do. But when we depend upon prayer, we get what God alone can do. Mark one thirty-five. Rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. He depended upon his father in prayer. How much more do we need to depend upon our father in prayer? The writer of Hebrews makes an interesting statement about the prayer life of Jesus. In Hebrews 5, 7, it says this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and he was heard because of his reverence. Now, this could be in reference to when Jesus was, was crying and, and sweats of blood came out right before he was to go to the cross. But it says throughout his life, Jesus prayed with loud cries and supplications. Again, oftentimes we don't know exactly what Jesus prayed but he would spend extended amounts of time on his face before the Father with loud cries and tears. And I wonder if that characterizes us. Are we so dependent upon our Heavenly Father that we spend evenings, nights, mornings in prayer on our faces crying with tears, seeking the will of our Heavenly Father? I mean, think about this. If Jesus did this and he's the Son of God, how dare we think that we could just kind of go through life without ever depending upon our Father? Here's the problem in America we're too comfortable. We have too much material wealth, we have too many um, just things that get in the way. And we pray when things are going bad. When things go bad, we'll pray. When we hit a crisis, we'll pray. But do we often pray for our daily bread? Do we spend extended amounts of time in prayer? Do we truly depend upon the Father in prayer? You know, we don't live in the villages of South Asia. I was on the phone last night with one of our our missionary friends, and we talk about going to South Asia where the women have to go miles with these big pots on their head to get water at sometimes the wells that come out and it's dirty water. I mean, that's, that's where you really have to depend upon the Lord when you're going that far just to get water. You can go across the street or you can go to a convenience store and you can get multi-different types of flavored water here in America. The reason we often don't depend upon the Lord is because we have everything we need. We are so privileged in America. We don't come to our Father with that childlike dependence. It just amazes me that Jesus was the Son of God. He, he knew everything... But yet he spent time depending upon his Father in prayer. How much more do we need to do that? James 1:17 says this: "Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of Lights, with whom there's no variation or cha- a shadow due to change. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. Are you spending time with that heavenly Father? Are you depending upon him the way Jesus did? So that's that's lesson number one. If Jesus depended upon his heavenly father in prayer, how much more do we need to depend upon our father in prayer? Number two, we should pray before making major decisions. What's Jesus about to do? He's about to choose 12 of his followers. 12 men, well, take Judas out of the equation, but 11 men who would carry on his ministry after he died and rose again and went back up to heaven. Men that would set the foundation for the future of Christianity. And Jesus is making a major decision and he prays for wisdom. He did not want to take this decision lightly. Now, we see the early church in Acts doing this very same thing. They learned from Jesus. In Acts chapter one, verse 14, all these were with one accord Devoting themselves, that's the key word, devoting themselves to prayer. Together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. They were devoting themselves to prayer. That that word devoting means they, they worked hard in prayer. They persisted in prayer. They were energetic in prayer. They were constant in prayer. They were devoting themselves to prayer. Samuel Chadwick says this, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from our prayerless studies, prayerless work and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but trembles when we pray. When they were replacing Judas, who went out and hanged himself, they were replacing Judas so they would have 12 in the book of Acts. What did they do before they made that major decision? In Acts: 124, they prayed and said, You, Lord, know the hearts of all. Show which one of these two you've chosen. They prayed as they made a major decision. Later on in Acts chapter 6, when the widows were getting overlooked in the daily distribution of the food, and they, the elders had to choose deacons, if you will, to serve, they prayed. Acts 6, 6. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Before they chose these servants, they prayed. Okay, Acts chapter 13. Before they send Paul and Barnabas out as missionaries, what does the church do as they're gathered there? They're praying and fasting. Acts chapter 13, verses one through three. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them out. Before they made that major decision to send Paul and Barnabas out on the first missionary journey, they prayed and they fasted. And then later on in Acts chapter 14, I think it is, verse 23, when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. The early church spent time in prayer and fasting before they made major decisions on spiritual leadership. Jesus spent all night in prayer before making a major decision on spiritual leadership. Now, what major life decisions are you making? Are you praying for wisdom before making major life decisions? Some of you in this room may be faced with major decisions. Job, career, relationship, future. Do you Pray like crazy for that wisdom that God gives. We prayed about this earlier. James 1, 5, and 6. Let me just remind you. We, we prayed earlier. If any one of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like the wave of a sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. So, so Jesus placed a priority on prayer, and so what do we see? Number one, he depended upon his father, We should depend upon our Father. Number two, Jesus prayed before making a major decision. We should pray before making major decisions. But here's the third thing we should pray before doing the work of ministry. Before Jesus sends his disciples out to do the work of ministry, he's praying. He's praying for decision making on how to choose these men. But what do we often do when it comes to ministry? We do the ministry and we do the work and then afterwards we pray and ask God to bless what we already did. We get so busy programming and planning and doing all these things that are good and the last thing we do is pray. Oh, by the way, God, bless my efforts. Many, many years ago, I, can't, I I've tried to find the quote. I, I tried to find the source, but it's, it stuck in my head. Charles Spurgeon, again, he said this, prayer is the work. We often think that the ministry is the work. Spurgeon said prayer is the work. Now, let me give you an example. Again, I was on the phone last night with one of our missionary partners, and over the years, our missionary friends and our church planning pastors in those remote villages that we go to have told me time and time again, if it were not for the prayers of Emmanuel Baptist Church, the work would not move forward. Your prayers are moving the work forward. Now, we go there maybe once every year, take a summer, spend 10 days there. We're not on the ground doing the work, but we're praying diligently for the work. And they tell me time and time again, prayer is the work. Prayer is moving the work forward. Prayer is the ministry. Jesus prayed before doing the work of ministry, before empowering these 12 men to go out and do the work of ministry. Philip Graham Riken has said this, we are never more like Jesus than when we get down on our knees to pray for people to go into the world and preach the gospel. So Jesus placed a high priority on prayer. He depended upon his heavenly father. We should depend upon our heavenly father. He prayed before making a major decision we should pray before making major decisions. He prayed before the work of ministry. Prayer is the work we should pray before we do ministry. So we need to follow Jesus' example with this type of intensity and urgency in our praying. Colossians 4, 2-4 through says this. Continue steadfastly in prayer. Steadfastly in prayer. Being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. On account of which I'm in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Okay, so truth number one from this passage of Scripture. I said there's two truths this morning. Truth number one, Jesus placed a priority on prayer. He spent all night in prayer. He spent intense time in prayer. But there's a second truth we see in this. Jesus shows us the power of the call. The power of the call. Look at verse 12. After spending all night in prayer, when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. He called and he chose. Two two words that Luke uses there. He called them, he chose them. The word called, when when Jesus called them, is talking more about his sovereignty, that he's the king. He's calling them. He's naming them. He's assembling this, this band of 12. He's reconstituting Israel, if you will, like the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament. Chose, Jesus is sovereignly electing them or predestining them, these men, to service. He's choosing them. And then he calls them apostles. Now, apostle's a special word. There's only 12 apostles. An apostle was one who was an eyewitness of Jesus who was specifically called by Jesus and was sent out by Jesus. An apostle was like an emissary or an envoy or an ambassador that went out in the authority of Jesus. These men would represent Jesus. Mark says it this way in Mark 3.14. He appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach. He called them, he chose them, Jesus says in John fifteen sixteen, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So Jesus specifically called and chose and appointed and named these men as apostles, as the 12, that they would go out and be his representatives. And it's interesting because in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, When they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. (laughs) These men were uneducated common men. They didn't have a seminary degree. When Jesus chooses his 12 men they're not likely candidates that the world would look at as likely candidates. They didn't have power. They didn't have prestige. They, weren't polit- they, did, they didn't have the, the, the credentials. They did not have the resume that would make them leaders of the community in the world's eyes. Four of them were fishermen, stinky, smelly fishermen. One was a tax collector. We talked about that a few weeks ago. One was a political revolutionary. And then you had Judas Iscariot. Even Judas was part of God's sovereign plan. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing when he chose Judas. It wasn't a surprise to Jesus. Judas didn't catch Jesus off guard. John 6, 7, 70 through 71. Jesus answered them, did I not choose you, the 12? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the 12, was going to betray him. John 17:12 While I was with them I kept them in your name which you've given me I've guarded them and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. So even Judas was part of the plan. So the calling, the commissioning, the choosing of the 12 was an unrepeatable event. That was the original 12. And even when Judas went and hanged himself after he betrayed Jesus and they they chose his replacement, that was the original 12 apostles. That's the foundation of the church. It's it's unrepeatable. There's never going to be another 12 apostles. They're the foundation for the church because they were the eyewitnesses to the resurrection. They were personally called by Jesus. Paul says that the church is founded on their, their foundation. Ephesians 2 19 through 21. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple into the Lord. So the choosing of the twelve is unrepeatable. But their choosing does show us something about the power of the call. The Bible speaks about three types of calls. There are three types of calls in your life. Here's the first. God has called you to salvation. He calls you to salvation. That's the first call. Salvation. John 6, 37, "...all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out." I can't go into a lot of detail here, but because of God's sovereign election in your life, he chose you before the foundations of the world. He gave you to Jesus as a love gift. And when that time comes where he calls you to himself, you will come. You will emphatically come to him. And you'll never be lost. You'll answer the call to salvation. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 through 24. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and wisdom of God. When God calls you to the gospel, you'll answer the call. Some people will see Jesus as foolish. Some people will see the cross as a stumbling block. But to those who are called, to those whom God has called to salvation, you will see Jesus as glorious. You will see Jesus as worthy. You will come to faith in salvation. Paul says in Romans 8.30, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. God calls you. To salvation. And this calling to salvation was God's plan way back in eternity past. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9, he saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which God gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So the very first call in your life is the initial call to salvation. God may be calling some of you here to salvation. He may be calling you to trust in him, to place your faith in him. It's the call that goes out to be saved. But there's a second type of call. It's the call to submit. God has called you to submit, not only to salvation, but to submit. Now, the official title of these apostles was the 12. But notice in verse 13, when day came, he called his disciples. They were called to be disciples. Now, what's a disciple? A disciple is a learner who sits under the authority of a master. Now, there's a confusion about the word disciple. Some people think the word disciple means you're a super Christian who's made this choice to kind of go deeper with Jesus. No, a disciple is a Christian, a Christian is a disciple. Every single person who's answered the call to salvation, you're now a disciple. A disciple is just the same thing as a follower of Christ, a Christian. There's no super status. Every single person that has trusted Christ for salvation, you're a disciple. And what that means is, not only has God called you to salvation where you've trusted Jesus to forgive you of your sins, but it's a call to submit. To submit to his lordship. To follow him. To leave everything and follow Jesus. Remember, Peter, James, and John, they left their nets. They left their business. They left everything to follow Jesus. Levi, the tax collector, left his tax collection booth and followed Jesus. When Jesus calls you to himself in faith, it's a call to submit, to submit your life to his lordship. Later on in Luke, Luke 9 23 through 25. He said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? God calls you to take up your cross daily, to deny yourself and to follow him. Many of you have probably heard of Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor back during World War II. He was in prison because he spoke out against Hitler. He wrote a famous book called The Cost of Discipleship. And there's a famous quote from that book. He says this, the cross is laid on every Christian. And here's the famous quote, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. When Christ calls you, he says, you're coming to die. You're coming to die to yourself, die to your ambitions, die to your agenda, die to your glory, die to your plans, die to anything that you would elevate as what you're in control of. You die to that. And you take up your cross and you submit to Jesus. So not only has Jesus called you to salvation, to trust Him for salvation, to forgive your sins, but He's called you to submit. To lay down your arms to surrender and say, Jesus, you're in control. You're in charge. You're the Lord. You're the boss. You have the right to call the shots. I'm giving up my rights to submit to you. So there's a call to salvation. There's a call to submit. But there's a third call. God has called you to serve. Now Jesus called and chose these 12 men to serve. They were gonna serve, they were gonna minister. As, as we continue to read, they're gonna go out and they're gonna preach the gospel, they're gonna cast out demons, they're gonna heal. When Jesus goes back up to heaven, they're gonna lead the church. These men are gonna do ministry. They're called not just to, to kind of be with Jesus, to learn from Jesus, but to actually serve and use their gifts. And every single follower of Christ, if you've, if you've answered the call to salvation and you've answered the call to be Jesus, to be the Lord of your life, he's also called you to serve the church, to serve others to serve. Ephesians four eleven through 13. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, that's me, that's the leaders, to do what? To equip the saints for what? For the work of ministry. To equip you for the work of ministry, which, which, which results in what? The building up of the body of Christ, the building up of the church, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I've been called as your pastor to equip, teach, train you to do the ministry. Now, I do ministry, and I quote-unquote get paid to do ministry. But the Bible says every person who's a Christian is called to serve. And when we all serve, what does the Bible say? The body of Christ grows... We mature, we're built up, we express love to one another. Peter says it this way in first Peter four ten through eleven. As each of you has received a gift, use it to serve one another. As good stewards of God's varied grace, whoever speaks. As one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. two major categories of, of gifting here. Speaking gifts and number two, serving gifts. And so Peter says, listen, you got a gift, serve. And you serve in the power that God gives you and you serve to the glory of God. And sometimes serving can be kind of scary. Sometimes we feel inadequate. I don't know what my spiritual gift is. I don't really know what the needs of the church are. I feel a little shaky about serving. I don't know if, I, if I'm talented enough. I don't know if I, if I have the, the strength to do it. I don't know, you know, what am I supposed to do here? I feel really intimidated. Well, you may not feel qualified to serve. You may not feel powerful to serve. You may not feel qualified or powerful, but let me give you some good news. Here's the good news. God doesn't call the qualified or the powerful, but he qualifies and empowers the called. Let me say that again. God doesn't call the qualified or the powerful, but he qualifies and he empowers the called. One thing I've noticed with this outbreak of COVID the past few weeks where I've had to be out and Youth Pastor Andrew's had to be out and Doug's had to be out and elders have had to be out and children's... Two Sundays ago, we had to call quits on church. And here's the real reason why. We had nobody able to step up to the plate and lead to do what we needed to do. And that has shown me a weakness in our church right now. That there's a very small group of people that are doing a lot of the work. And so we need every single person to serve. And you may say, well, Pastor Sean, I don't know where to do that. I don't know how to do that. Well, please come talk to me afterwards. We'd love to get you plugged into places where you can, can serve the body of Christ. So we've been called to salvation, we've been called to submit, and we've been called to serve. So so we see two main truths in this passage of Scripture. Number one, Jesus placed a priority on prayer. He depended upon his Heavenly Father. How much more should we depend upon our Heavenly Father? He prayed before making major life decisions. We should pray before making major decisions. He prayed before the work of ministry. We too should pray before the work of ministry. And then secondly, we see the power of the call. Jesus called these unqualified, uneducated men, these men that didn't really know anything, and the Bible says they turned the world upside down. Made a lot of mistakes, did a lot of crazy things, yet Jesus chose them to do the work of ministry as his apostles. And you too, have been called. Hopefully you've been called to salvation where you said yes to Jesus and you've, you've trusted him to forgive you of your sins. And you've been called to submit to where Christ is the Lord of your life and you've, you've, you've died to yourself. And then you've been called to serve, to serve the Lord with your gifts and your talents. And he supplies the grace for you to be able to serve. So as we celebrate the Lord's Supper today, and I'm not gonna forget it this week, you guys remember a few weeks ago? <laughs> I was done preaching and I looked up like, where's the praise team? And then Doug and my wife said, Lord's Supper. So I wrote it in my notes this morning so I wouldn't forget. And it's right in front of me here. So we're doing the Lord's Supper. I'm, on, I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. Okay, so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning, let us just be thankful of God's calling upon our lives. And as we take the Lord's Supper Would you use this as an opportunity to spend time with the Lord in prayer? It would be a shame to come to a worship service and spend all day here and not pray. Not seek the face of the Lord in prayer. Not spend time with your Heavenly Father. So just two questions. Do you place a priority on prayer the way Jesus did? And do you answer the call that Jesus has on your life to salvation, to submit, and to serve? I can't answer that for you. Only you can. But let's do that this morning as we take the Lord's Supper. Let's spend time in prayer and let's thank him for the call upon our lives. So I'm gonna ask you to bow your heads as we go into a time of prayer in preparation for the Lord's Supper. And would you just spend a few moments in silent prayer go into your heavenly Father, and then I'll lead us. Jesus, I'm amazed that you would spend all night in prayer seeking the face of your heavenly Father. When you were perfect, you were God in the flesh. I don't fully understand it. Lord, I'll admit I don't fully understand it, but I know that One thing I do know, Jesus, if you had to spend time in prayer, how much more do I need to spend time in prayer? Because I am clueless, I am weak. We often don't have the answers. We often are nervous or anxious about things going on in our lives. So, Lord, help us just to spend that time in prayer seeking your face. And, Lord, if we lack wisdom, help us to ask, and we know that you give it to us. You answer our prayers. You give us guidance and direction. Help us to be dependent upon you. Lord, I do thank you that you've called us. You've called us to salvation, Lord. There may be some in this room that haven't responded to the call. I pray that today would be the day where they say yes to you, Jesus, that they would know that they're a sinner, they're separated from you, and that they need to have forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life. And today would be the day where they say yes to the call of salvation and yes to the call of submitting to you as Lord. Lord, would you save those that need to be saved this morning in a very powerful way? And Lord, for others that are here, they may need to say yes to the call to serve. And maybe they don't know what that looks like. And maybe it's kind of risky, but Lord, you're you're tugging at their heart that they need to step up and serve. Lord, would you give them the strength to say yes to the call to serve? We thank you, Jesus, for your grace. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your love. And now as we go into a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper, help us to have joy as we do it. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.